Good morning, everyone, and welcome to the Sons of Sequoia podcast. Good morning, David. How are you doing this morning? I'm doing well. It is April 13th, 2021, and we missed Monday because of some prior engagements. We're back on Tuesday, but it's not a movie Tuesday. We are doing an episode about foreign affairs once again. Uh, one yes, of our favorite, it, one of our favorite topics, right? It is. It's very, very stimulating. Mm-hmm. And it's and, good to think about. Good to and, talk about. And we point this out every time we do it, but uh, we are subscribers to Foreign Affairs. We pay them their subscription fee because we believe that it's a uh, worthwhile publication. And when we do these episodes, we read the essays in their entirety so that you're not really getting our interpretation of what was said. You're getting what they said, and then we analyze it. And I think that's uh, lost a lot of times when you say, oh, this article, let me pull the two or three most salacious quotes, and that'll be the takeaway. You'll hear that on the news all the time. I mean, I think partly it's because it's more boring to read everything verbatim, but I think that by reading everything verbatim, you can get a more complete idea of what's being said. You don't have a straw man argument for what this author Oren Cass is saying. It's more, this is exactly what he said. You can't reduce it to something that uh, caricature of what he's trying to say. So our analysis is based on, we give you, we give you the context, right, mm -hmm. David? We give you the entire the content. Con the content. And therefore, you can pull out the context. And also, you know, I want to say that it respects these authors. Mm -hmm. it, it respects these authors on what they say and how they say it. So you can judge for yourself. And uh, so these authors, again, I want to, uh, we want to respect them because they're, they're very smart. And when they say something, they say it the way they want to say it. Mm -hmm. And so a lot of times when you hear it on uh, someone talk about something, they, it's not necessarily what they meant to say. It's what people interpret from what they're saying. Mm -hmm. And so, so you know, our podcast, we're, we're going to be actually reading it so you can actually see exactly what they say. Mm -hmm. and so, so I like it. So today's, uh, Foreign Affairs does this a lot. There's, um, I think in the realm of foreign affairs, there's the neoliberal world order. That's what was established after World War II. That's uh, international institutions like the UN, the International Monetary Fund, the World Bank, um, and you have this idea that promotion of liberal values across the globe will be a good thing. And I think in modern times, conservatives have said, no, globalism is the source of our problems. What we really need to do is sort of go back to isolationism, go back to, uh, you know, not embrace the neoliberal world order. That orthodoxy is wrong. Um, and foreign affairs always uh, includes a very conservative viewpoint. And this issue, they're uh, including Oren Cass. We can take a look here. He's the executive director of American Compass and author of The Once and Future Worker, A Vision of Renewal of Work in America. In 2012, he was domestic policy director for, US, uh, for Mitt Romney's U.S. presidential campaign. So this guy is a traditional conservative. And so they've chosen him to sort of write the, this is where right-wing politics should go in America article. Now, if you know anything about politics in America, you'll say, this guy loses prima facie. He loses on his face because he's not a Trump supporter. But 
there's more to being a conservative than just supporting one man. And that's what he's going to sort of explore in this article. And the article is a new conservatism freeing the right from free market orthodoxy. So the fascinating thing is a lot of people have a hard time wrapping their heads around it. But a lot of times conservatism, liberalism, they're a collection of ideas. They're not just blind devotion to one person. And that's uh, tough for some people to understand, but but that's the traditionally the way it's been. Because it's easier that way to let someone else think for you. Yes. And for some reason, the stream is not going well. It's... Uh, I, if you give me a second, I'm going to mute my audio and just see what's going on because okay. uh, I'm having a hard time maintaining upload speeds or something. Uh, oh, just g- okay. give me one second of troubleshooting. All right, whatever, you know. If, it, if the stream is choppy, the stream is choppy. It's being recorded. It'll be available as a podcast to everyone. We can't let issues with the stream keep us from getting the podcast out. Isn't, isn't that correct? That's correct. So let's just jump into this. A new conservative freeing the right from free market orthodoxy by Oren Cass. The COVID-19 pandemic sent U.S. policymakers scurrying to their bookshelves, searching for responses to a public health catastrophe that threatened to plunge households, businesses, and governments into financial despair. Republicans on Capitol Hill and in the White House flipped frantically through their dog-eared playbooks from the 1980s to determine just the right tax cut for the moment. But the chapter on society-wide lockdowns was nowhere to be found. Many Republicans shrugged and proposed a tax cut anyway. President Donald Trump called for reducing the capital gains rate and joined Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell in pushing for an expansion of the corporate meals and entertainment deduction. Stephen Moore, an economic advisor to Trump, argued for a payroll deferral that even the U.S. Chamber of Commerce dismissed as unworkable. Two months after the passage of the CARES Act, as the novel coronavirus continued to rage, the Wall Street Journal editorial board questioned whether more relief was necessary, suggesting instead that every private investment made for the rest of this year be exempt from any capital gains tax. On the same morning that a six-column New York Times headline blared market spiral as globe shutters over virus, Nikki Haley, the former South Carolina governor who served as U.S. ambassador to the U.N., displayed the familiar instincts of a future Republican presidential candidate by tweeting, As we are dealing with changes in our economy, tax cuts are always a good idea. The pandemic's distinctness made for a distinctly inept response. But this was only the latest iteration of a pattern that had imprinted itself across the right of center in recent years. Even in the face of new economic challenges, China's aggressive mercantilism, the financial crisis, rising inequality, the Republican Party has hewed rigidly to an agenda of tax and spending cuts deregulation, and free trade. The descent into dogmatism is a time-honored tradition in American politics. What makes conservatism's present bout peculiar, however, is its lack of any discernible conservatism. 
the coalition of economic libertarians, social conservatives, and foreign policy hawks that kicked off the Reagan revolution, vanquished stagflation, and won the Cold War is rightfully proud of its accomplishments. But that bargain, whereby each camp took charge of its own portfolio, left wide swaths of public policy in the hands of a small clique of market fundamentalists. They shared few values or intuitions with conservatives, who were themselves consigned to talking about social issues. As conservative economic thinking atrophied, libertarian ideas ossified into the market fundamentalism that more commentators today casually call conservative. The result has been a political crisis for conservatism, especially and for the American government broadly. A right of center that is neither conservative nor responsive to people's problems is incapable of playing its vital role as the outlet for a nation's conservative impulses and the counterweight to its progressive ones, nor will it win many elections. In his run for the White House, Trump exposed the weakness of Republican establishment and the frustration and alienation of its voters, but he was no conservative. Indeed, he lacked any discernible ideology or capacity for governing. He left the White House in disgrace, having also lost his party, the House and the Senate, abdicated all responsibility for leadership during the pandemic, and broken a centuries-long tradition of outgoing presidents conceding defeat and transferring power peacefully. Now is the moment for conservatives to reassert their claim to the right of center. In the United States and in the rest of the world, serious problems created in part by the absence of a robust conservatism require conservative solutions. Progressivism, meanwhile, is increasingly obsessed with identity politics and the bugbears of its overeducated elite. That makes it uniquely vulnerable to competition from an ideological message focused on the worries shared by most Americans, regardless of their race or religion about the foundations of their families and communities. In politics, the odds usually favor incumbents, but the establishment that is flying conservatism's banner has lost its vitality and now hunkers down behind crumbling walls, reciting stale pieties that few still believe. The circumstances today suggest that a realignment around a multi-ethnic, working-class conservatism might just have a chance. <laughs> wow. He came out of the gate swinging. Well, he sure did. Wow, there's a lot. There's a lot there. Mm -hmm. uh, he doesn't. He doesn't waste words, does he? He just wow. He did. He came out of the gate swinging. Uh, there's a lot there. He said a lot of different things, and I don't know. A lot of things went through my mind. What went through your mind? Um, well, I do think that the fascinating thing is, foreign affairs is a different. It's a different publication than a newspaper, or it's especially different from cable news. This guy, despite being a conservative for his whole life, despite studying conservative domestic policy, despite being hired by Mitt Romney to sort of craft the domestic policy for the Republican candidate in 2012, less than 10 years ago, if he was on Fox News, he would be the bad guy. You're not really allowed yeah. to say these things. Um, That's right. Now, but I guess what he's saying is, the position that you've staked out, the position that would make him the bad guy, is the position that will make the Republican Party losers for years to come. They've already proven they can't win an election. They lost the House. They lost the Senate. They lost the presidency. Um, their strategy isn't working. And he's saying the, the point is not to double down. The point is we have to find something that does work if we want to preserve a right-of-center party in America. Yeah, double down 
has not been working the last four years mm-hmm. uh, for them. Uh, it has gone the it's gone the different way, wrong way. Uh, and also, it is like you say. I love how you said that he came out swinging. He came out just really uh, uh, focused directly on uh, the policies, uh, the mistakes that were made, and uh, didn't pull any punches. Uh, but uh, I'm wondering if, while he's setting the stage, uh, his arguments are setting the stage for something that's going to be very specific. And so he's he's moving in a direction. He's trying to establish that stage. And I thought it was very interesting how he used uh, uh, incidences in the past, failures in the past as foundations and also attacking the people a little bit, too. You know, the elite and the educated and say, OK, because of this, this is where we need to go. Well, uh, that type of logic uh, usually works well in politics. Uh, but I think in academia, you got to be really careful because that basis could go in multiple multiple directions. And so you have to be really careful when you start using that type of logic of, of look how bad this is. We need to change it. Uh, well, you don't look at how bad things are. You look at why they're bad. And hopefully he's going to get into that. And uh, why they're bad should not be wrapped up in a person. It's what the person does. Uh, and also the policies and the and the positions that were that were made, not necessarily uh, a person. So we'll see how he how he uh, builds on this mm-hmm. and how he takes it. Yeah. Um, do you want to read the next section? Yeah. Okay. The uh, let me pull this over here. Let's see here. Let me get this framed up. Okay. The uh, the Trump earthquake. Trump's victory in the 2016 presidential election was an extraordinary aberration. Had Trump run in a typical primary, he would have struggled to assemble a plurality of supporters. Had the opponent who finally emerged as his alternative been more popular with the Republican Party leader than Senator Ted Cruz of Texas, Trump would likely have lost. Compare how quickly Democrats rallied around Joe Biden four years later when it appeared that Senator Bernie Sanders of Vermont might actually secure their party's nomination. In the general election, had his opponent been a competent politician rather than Hillary Clinton, Trump would likely have lost. In the end, Trump won the Electoral College in 2016 by the narrowest of margins in several states and lost the popular vote decisively. Still, his success exposed deep rot in the American political system. A well-functioning party capable of serving its constituents does not allow itself to be commandeered as the GOP was. A country with a responsive and effective political class does not elect a vulgar reality TV star to the world's most powerful office. Trump's heterodoxy and disruptiveness provided the equivalent of an enormous natural experiment, and the results were surprising. The problems Trump emphasized bore little resemblance to the standard stories both parties thought they should tell, yet they seemed to resonate with voters even though he offered no solutions. His remarkable gains among non-whites compared with Republicans in prior election cycles refuted many of the standard hypotheses about identity politics and gendered toward the possibility of a right-of-center consolidation consolidating a cultural conservatism, uh, right-of-center consolidating a cultural, culturally conservative bloc across races. 
What Trump did not provide was any foundation for a political movement to build on. Trump was not conservative in style or substance under any meaningful definition of the word, but he didn't seem to be anything else either. His background evinced no commitment to any set of political principles and his campaign's message and agenda never adopted one. With no intellectual framework, his administration's fortunes rose and fell on the highly variable quality of his appointees who often seemed to be working at cross purposes. For each statement, appointment, or policy action pushing in one direction, the administration typically had another one pushing the other way. Unsurprisingly, this proved to be an obstacle to both governance and coalition building, and it provided a poor basis for a re-election campaign. And yet, had the U.S. economy been booming in 2020 at the prior year's pace, rather than struggling against an unprecedented public health crisis, Trump might easily have won a second term. In the wake of Trump's defeat, analysts have pondered whether his brand of pop populism might represent the conservative future. But this misunderstands his role. There is no discernible Trumpism independent of Trump himself. His presidency was an earthquake, the immediate result of a political landscape shifted after decades of mounting pressure. Earthquakes do not build anything. They disrupt and destroy, but they are temporary and they provide the benefit of, ex of exposing structures that were sloppily built or that rested on crumbled foundation. People who relied on the old structures will rush in to put them right back up again. But after the earthquake comes, a chance to reassess, to learn from what failed, and to rebuild in a way better suited to contemporary conditions. The important question to ask about the earthquake is not about the earthquake at all. It is, what should we build now? So the analogy is, I, I, when you use an analogy, it's like, I listen to that and I say, yeah, that makes sense to me. Um, but I always try to think of it from the perspective of someone that's a dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporter. And you know what I think they would say to, let's pull up the text. Uh, there is no discernible Trumpism independent of Trump. His presidency was an earthquake. Their remedial, uh, earthquakes do not build anything. They disrupt and destroy, but they are temporary. You know what a Trump supporter might say to that? Trump forever. You wish. That's what you want. You're a Romney Republican. You work for Romney. Uh, guess what? Romney doesn't control the party. Trump does. So you may think that it's temporary, but let's see what happens. Let's see what happens in the next election cycle when uh, congressmen and senators go to bat in 2022 for their seats. Will the Republican Party choose the candidates or will Trump choose the candidates? And if Trump chooses the candidates for the Republican Party, Trump is the Republican Party. And, you know, this author might say that's just an aftershock. Like what's going to happen when Trump loses his relevance? And they may say, like you said, Trump forever. Trump will never lose his relevance. As long as he is drawing a breath, he'll be controlling the right. And that's um, that's not my argument. That's my hypothesis of a dyed-in-the-wool Trump supporters argument. That's right. And uh, the words that come to mind is they were just the Trump supporter and the Trump argument would be 
we're just getting started. Mm-hmm. So they're not going to give up. Because, because it's not about policy. It's not about platform. It's about belief. And they believe in this guy. And, uh, uh, and a lot of Americans believe in him. And, uh, and um, the belief in him and voting in areas that are ger- gerrymandered can elect someone even without the popular vote. And we've seen that. Mm-hmm. I mean, and yeah. So our, because our system may be, uh, maybe our system needs to be rethought. Yeah, I mean, I the, mean ele- the Electoral every, College every, isn't necessarily gerrymandering, but it, th- that's what allowed him to get elected. But, that's right. like, you take a look at, you know, a lot of districts, and the district is 80% Republican. So whoever has the R next to their name on the ballot on the second Tuesday in November 2022 will win that district for Congress. Well, the Republican Party might want a right-of-center conservative that is going to toe the party line and vote for Republican policies. Trump may want the wacko QAnon candidate who has pledged their undying devotion to them. And the thing is, if Trump can push that candidate over the right-of-center conservative... That candidate's going to win that district, and I we've seen that here with uh, our QAnon Congresswoman Lauren Boebert. Um, if you are if you have the R next to your name, even if your opponent is a well measured, reasoned person who advocates for policies that will help your district, who understands the nuanced concerns of your constituency, well, you don't have the R next to your name, so you lose. Well, I think what what we have seen, at least what I've seen, the way I would see this is that people will vote against themselves. People will vote that will hurt them by voting for someone they believe in. Mm -hmm. They'll vote on uh, uh, charismatic person and charisma before they vote for something that's good for them because they don't they don't understand the voting. Uh, at least that's how I would how it's how I would frame it. Mm-hmm. And so you can make them believe in a person, believe in an ideal, believe in something that doesn't exist. Uh, you don't have to you don't have to provide solutions to some, to many voters. You don't have to provide something that's that is a reasonable a reasonable solution to a problem. You just have to make them believe in promises, and you don't have to fulfill them. Yes. And people will vote. That's how people vote, which is unfortunate. That's America. That's unfortunately, that's a lot of America, not all of America, but a lot of America is that way. So as we get into the next section, I think that our takeaway is the hypothesis being laid out in the first section is that Trump is not here to stay. It was a temporary blip. It destroyed and exposed structures that need to be rebuilt stronger. And obviously, it stands to reason that Orrin Cass will now. Uh, identify those structures and explain how they should be rebuilt stronger. So instead of, I mean, we, I think that we have a criticism of his initial formulation that I think that as a lifelong conservative, someone that's been devoted to conservative principles, he wants to see those principles remain relevant and he doesn't see Trump as a means to that end. But that doesn't necessarily mean that his hypothesis that Trump is temporary is true. Now, and I, and I also go ahead. Now, moving forward, let's give him the benefit of the doubt and say, yes, Trump is temporary. He was like an earthquake. 
Let's see what he has to say about where conservatism should go from here. Yeah, that's what I was going to say, David, that this is just what we think. Mm -hmm. Uh, Someone else listening to this might think differently. But as you said, let's go back and see what he says. Yes. And let's see how he says it based on his paper, Established Thinking. Yes. So we're going to accept his premise that Trump was like an earthquake and it exposed, uh, like an earthquake, it got exposed structures that were sloppily built or rested on crumbling foundations. Now, the knee-jerk reaction is to just rebuild everything. But he thinks that we should reassess and sort of determine the next course of conservatism. And that's what we're going to get into now. Establishment thinking. Back to the article. The hallmark of conservatism is not, as is often thought, opposition to change or the desire for return to some earlier time. This misconception that conservatives lack substantive preferences and merely reflect their environments leads to some confusing conclusions. For example, that the conservative of 1750 would oppose American independence, but the conservative of 1800 would support it. Or that today's conservative must favor rapid globalization and deregulated financial markets because that has been the recent tradition. What, in fact, distinguishes conservatives is their attention to the role that institutions and norms play in people's lives and in the process of governing. When the foundations of society are threatened, wrote the political theorist Samuel Huntington, the conservative ideology remains reminds men of the necessity of some institutions and the desirability of the existing ones. Edmund Burke, the father of modern conservatism, provided a quintessential illustration of this dynamic. Although he was a member of the British House of Commons, Burke supported the American Revolution in 1776 on the grounds that the United Kingdom, through its overbearing administration and arbitrary taxation, had irrevocably breached its relationship with the colonies. He thought the Americans could better continue in their tradition of self-government if they freed themselves from King George III's rule. Yet, a decade later, Burke reacted with horror to the French Revolution, in which he saw a radical mob tearing away the guardrails and buttresses on which society depended. In both assessments, of course, he was proved in entirely correct. The United States became a flourishing democracy, and France descended into chaos. Burke was at once a preserver of venerated traditions and a reformer of failing institutions. The conservative scholar Yuval Levine has written, as Burke himself put it, a disposition to preserve and an ability to improve taken together would be my standard of a statesman. This same disposition is easily identifiable in conservatives today. The psychologist Jonathan Haidt, who has spent years testing the foundations of people's moral reasoning, has found that conservatives tend to exhibit a much broader range of moral concerns, giving fairly equal weight to care, liberty, fairness, loyalty, authority, and sanctity. They believe that people need external structures or constraints in order to behave well, cooperate, and thrive. Haidt has written, These external constraints include laws, institutions, customs, traditions, nations, and religions. Liberals, by contrast, overwhelmingly prioritize care, particularly care for victims of oppression. Libertarians, for their part, are obsessed with liberty to the exclusion of other values. As a result, conservatism, more so than other ideologies, sees progress as a process of accumulation rather than disruption, recognizing what is good in society and striving to build on it. Conservatism approaches the project of governing with a particular humility, grateful for whatever 
for whatever order a society's traditions have managed to wrangle from imperfect human nature, the problems it identifies and the solutions it proposes give relatively less weight to guaranteeing individual freedom and choice and more to reinforcing obligations and constraints, relationships and norms, and the mediating institutions that shape and channel people's energies toward productive ends. Viewed this way, the conservative affinity for markets should seem natural. Markets limit the power of a central government and place it instead in the hands of those best positioned to take care of their own interests. They evolve over time in response to real-world conditions rather than at the whim of a technocrat. They are themselves institutions through which people develop informal codes and formal rules to help themselves cooperate and transact more productively. An alliance with libertarians to promote, to promote markets was logical in the second half of the 20th century, during an era of great power competition against communism and when the domestic market was choked by an exploding bureaucracy and welfare state, a sclerotic system of organized labor, confiscatory tax rates, and raging inflation. Critically, however, a conservative skepticism of markets is equally natural. Markets reduce people to their material interests and reduce relationships to transactions. They prioritize efficiency to the exclusion of resilience, sentiment, and tradition. Shorn of constraints, they often reward the most socially corrosive behaviors and quickly undermine the foundations of a stable community. For instance, pushing families to commit both parents to full-time market labor or strip-mining talent from across the nation and consolidating it in a narrow set of cosmopolitan hubs. For conservatism, then, markets are a valuable mechanism for sustaining and advancing a flourishing society, but they should never be an end unto themselves, and their quality is contingent on the norms and rules by which they function, and the vitality of the other institutions operating alongside them. Libertarians have no time for such nuance, and the purportedly conservative establishment has paid it little heed either. Senator Pat Toomey, Republican of Pennsylvania, has defined capitalism as nothing more than economic freedom, a sentiment echoed by Haley, who has warned that any interference with the freedom would head down the slow path to socialism. Jack Spencer, the vice president of the Heritage Foundation's Institute for Economic Freedom and Opportunity, has suggested, why don't we look at policy and just ask, does it expand economic freedom? The conservative columnist Amity Shales has gone so far as to declare, markets do not fail us, we fail markets. The right of center's preeminent public policy institutions display these same blinders in their mission statements, or rather, mission statement, as they all seem to share the same one. Conservative think tank world is dedicated to advancing the principles of, quote, limited government, free enterprise, and individual liberty, that's the Competitive Enterprise Institute, or, quote, free markets and limited effective government, that's the R Street Institute, or, quote, free enterprise, limited government, and individual freedom, that's the Heritage Foundation, or, quote, individual liberty, limited government, and free markets, that's the Cato Institute, or, quote, economic choice and individual responsibility, that's the Manhattan Institute, or, finally, quote, individual economic and political freedom, private enterprise and representative government. That's the Hoover Institution. What began as entirely justified advocacy for the benefits of markets has mutated into the a fundamentalism that throws bad policy after good, unable to distinguish between what markets can and cannot do, and unwilling to acknowledge the harm that they can cause. Fortunately, it comes with an expiration date. That was a long section. That was very interesting, though. Very interesting on how he he argues it from an economic standpoint and uh, uh, and a political standpoint. I don't know. I don't know. It's uh, 
looking at this and hearing it, uh, I'm thinking, okay, it sounds good. Uh, it sounds fairly idealistic, sounds fairly theoretical, and uh, but I'm wondering how it plays out. I, the I practice guess of it. Here's my my hundred yard view is that what he's saying is traditional conservative economic policy does have more reliance on the market than liberal policy. Um, and this is not what he said, but this is me reading between the lines. Uh, you know, with the way that American politics is structured, like a two-party system and the gerrymandered districts, as you alluded to before, you sort of outflank everyone. If you're in a, a Democratic district, you try to outflank your opponent to the left in terms of economic issues. If you're in a Republican district, you outflank them to the right. Well, we want pure libertarianism. We don't want, you know, to restrain markets at all. And so you're trying to outflank everyone. And then in the people's heads, you sort of think of, well, the conservative economic agenda is to cut taxes and just let the market run everything. And what he's saying is that's not necessarily true. Conservatives should focus on the areas in which government restraining the market will ameliorate negative effects. Now, he can say that in a foreign affairs article. Can a candidate say that on the campaign trail without being <laughs> accused of being a socialist? Uh, no, because they will. They will immediately. Very good point. Yeah. So, yes, he's not wrong. It's just the practical considerations of politics in this era. Um, and it, I guess what he's saying is he does have a point. Like, what if conservatives started to advocate for market-limiting practices that made the American economy stronger um, and moved some of that jurisdiction from the marketplace to the federal government, well, that's sort of against the core beliefs of, mm -hmm. of the Republican Party right now. And he's saying it may be against, they may, that may be a third rail, but that's actual conservatism. Uh, right. And what happens is, is the argument, it becomes labeling. They'll label, label you as a socialist. And so they slap labels on you. And all of a sudden, that's what the voters will, will run for, mm -hmm. run after the, the labels. Yeah. You know, they'll have a label on your forehead, and that's who you are. It's not, no, listen to what he's saying. He's saying much more than that. It's not just a, 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 a soundbite. It's a whole argument. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and people listen to soundbites, not arguments, and they slap labels on a soundbite, and sometimes it's hard to shake it. Yeah. Um, well, the other thing that kept, we mentioned this before, uh, I just keep going back to this. I think it's just a, a basic principle is that like Yogi Berra's, uh, Yogi Berra's. Uh, in theory great, and practice. Great, great, about theory and practice. In theory, there's no difference between theory and practice. In practice, there is. And that's really true. And uh, and also the way the way people say it, the way mm -hmm. the people's perceptions and, uh, and that the people vote. So we have a very, very different and unusual kind of system here in the United States. I mean, yeah. How will it work? Maybe this will work better than the current Republican economic platform. But why is the current Republican economic platform the way it is? Because someone that shows a desire to sort of restrain markets, pull them in, um, they might as well be a liberal. That's, I mean, there's no shades of gray. Either it's 100% market or you're a socialist. And that's tough. That's a tough environment to sort of make these proposals in 
without being a moderate Democrat. Because I think that in, in the like a, a Joe Biden style Democrat, he's very centrist. You know, people like to paint him. Well, Trump, he's the most liberal person that ever walked planet Earth. He's more liberal than Bernie Sanders and Jesus combined. Um, uh, but that's not true. He's always been a moderate. You know, he's always sort of worked across the aisle, and he's had sort of center-left to center-center to center-right economic ideas. And I do think, like he mentioned in the first section, how the Republican Party... Move, I mean, the Democratic Party moved heaven and earth to make Joe Biden the candidate uh, instead of Bernie Sanders. I do think that was the party still having control. Bernie is a charismatic guy. Bernie had the vitriol and anger like Trump, but he also did have, unlike Trump, a very realized political and economic position. And that position was left of center democratic socialism, far left of center, you know, and a lot of people see him talking about that and they say, that makes sense. Why should 1% of the people control 90% of the wealth in this country? That doesn't make that much sense. He's talking sense. And unlike the Republicans, the Democratic Party still had enough wherewithal to prevent a guy like that from being the nominee. <laughs> the Republicans couldn't do it. The Democrats could. So um, that's one, I mean, I guess to their credit, I don't think that Bernie Sanders... I mean, I guess it's all you don't know until it happens. But my estimation is that a President Sanders wouldn't have been as damaging to the country as a President Trump was. And I mean, that's just my opinion, because some people will say he was the greatest president we ever had. And I don't know if they could justify that, but they could justify it in their own heads. So um, so, so to them, it's true. It's not a lie if you believe it, like George Costanza said. <laughs> That's that's true. That's but true. I guess I'm, I guess I'm not talking about the potential efficacy of the presidency. I'm talking about the efficacy of the party to not select someone that's an out of consensus figure. Like Trump was an out of consensus figure. You can roll the tape on Lindsey Graham, on Ted Cruz, on all these people who went to bat for him, saying this guy's a nightmare. He's a monster. And this is, you know, 2015, 2016. Like, there's no way we're going to elect this guy. I'm going to eat my hat if this guy gets elected. He's he's the worst. And then he gets elected, and it's like, well, hail to the leader. Uh, so Well, I, I remember uh, wondering, talking about the party, uh, to me, the impact, I guess, you know a lot more about politics than I do, David, but when I hear this, the, what I think of is this one thing is the party's per perception and the party's platform and the party uh, analyzing uh, uh, politics and economy and our government. And the other is the voters and the people, how they look at things. And so uh, you can have a platform, you can have a, a policy, but then on the voter side, if you have an individual like Trump uh, that is charismatic, uh, that really provides no solutions. Uh, but what he says is that make America great. We're going to be great. We're going to be great, but doesn't say how. Mm -hmm. People will vote for that, even though the party says, no, that's that doesn't make it. There's no there's no plan there. Yes, but the people will vote for that rhetoric. And I'm thinking, wow, uh, I think what Trump really did for this country was reveal, and I think he mentioned it in this, this article too, was reveal some weaknesses, was reveal some things that were very uh, 
uh, were just lurking there and no one tapped into because no one would go there. But Trump did go there and he tapped into an emotion uh, and he promised them things. And then when it didn't happen, he would blame someone else. Mm -hmm. Well, it works. Yeah. You know, you can say that's terrible. Well, whether it is or not, it worked. It worked then. And who knows, like they're saying, it might work in the future because he, he does tap in to uh, a, much of American voters and just promising them things. Uh, you don't have to deliver. You just have to promise them and they will vote for something that's better. Yeah, I I, I think you're right. And I do think like the, this guy sort of dunked on Hillary Clinton. A little bit, if you remember, in the early stages. He's like, if he had faced anyone but a completely incompetent Hillary Clinton. And this is the difference between Trump and Clinton. Um, Clinton, and I'm just paraphrasing here, but I'm, I'm basically right. Clinton gets asked about the Affordable Care Act. And she said, well, there's earned interest tax credits. And what we need to do is sort of go into the systems and um, give a tax benefit here and a tax benefit there. And before you know it, it'll lower your uh, out-of-pocket costs to the average middle-class person by about $1,250 a year. And that'll improve the efficiency of Obamacare. That's a, a, the type of answer she'd give. And then they'd ask Trump, what about Obamacare? Obamacare is a disaster. We're going to throw it out. It's like, well, but what, what are you going to replace it with? And he's like... You're going to be so happy with your health care when I throw out Obamacare and replace it with Trump care. You're going to be so happy. It's not, we're going to enact this tax. We're not going to draw from this pot and put it here. We're not going to change the machinery of bureaucracy so that health care works better. It's you're going to be happy. That's how you describe your policy. And the thing is, yeah, I don't really care how it works as long as I'm happy. This guy's got a point. The other lady started talking about tax and spend and and I got I got dizzy. This guy is telling me I'm going to be happy. I'm going to vote for him. You can wrap your head around happy, <laughs> but those voters cannot wrap their head around an argument about the fiscal responsibility of government mm -hmm. and policy and the different com complexity of how things interact with one another. They can't wrap their head around that, but they can wrap their head around, you're going to be happy. You're going to be happy. I understand that. And so I think, you know, and of course, Hillary tried during her husband's administration to do health care and that failed. But she is a smart lady that did a lot of research that knows a lot about the specific ins and outs. And here's the thing. If you're talking to a healthcare administrator, if you're talking to a bureaucrat that works with the insurance companies, if you're talking to a CEO of an insurance company, they know the jargon, they know the lingo, they wanna get into the weeds. If you're talking to a voter, they don't wanna know about the weeds. That's right. And you know, from my experience, uh, I'll just throw this out there, this is my opinion, is that Hillary uh, Clinton uh, lost and as far as I'm concerned, that makes her uh, a very, very uh, attractive person to help you with whatever you need to do, uh, either in politics or policy, because she knows what not to do. She's a smart lady. Mm -hmm. She's a competent lady. But uh, but uh, she lost. And sometime losing is the best teacher. And I, I don't know, I think maybe even behind the scenes. Uh, but not in front of the camera. But I don't know. I, I respect her 
knowledge and her experience right now. I don't know her that well. I don't, I don't know her at all. But I, when I think of that, when I think of someone who has those kinds of lo- that kind of logic, those kinds of answers, they go, wow, that's very technical. It sounds, if you start digging down into the weeds, she's probably right because she has a lot of experience, but she's not appealing to the voters. Yeah. So, so she lost for those reasons, but she didn't lose because she had bad answers. It just wasn't popular answers. And so I think what a resource and, and those kind of people to lose. Everyone has value to find where their value can contribute. Mm-hmm. So I just, I just want to throw, I want to throw that out there. It doesn't really apply to this article, though. No. So going back to the article before we go into the next section, he's basically yeah. saying there is a. Let me just go back. What was this called? The orthodoxy failure of orthodoxy or something? Establishment thinking. He's talking about how there's a traditional conservative role, and then there's what has been hijacked. So, and I think he's mostly talking about the conservative policies in relationship to the market. How conservatives are not libertarians. They do not believe that the government should have no role in the market. But if you look at all these think tanks and you look at current Republican thinkers on economics, they do have a very libertarian bent. And that is, I think, the phenomenon I was explaining where if you're... Mm. If your district is 85% Republican, you try to outflank people to the right. Because if you control the right, Mm -hmm. you control the district. Um, So you see more libertarians than traditional conservatives in terms of economic policy. Because a traditional conservative can be labeled as a liberal. Even though they're actually a conservative. So that's the establishment thinking and how it's sort of been hijacked. Traditional conservative economic policy has sort of shifted to the right and become libertarianism. So getting into that, let's get to the next section. Okay. Do you want to read it? Anatomy of a failure. Okay. Anatomy of a failure. It is telling that right-of-center coalitions across Western democracies find themselves under pressure simultaneously. The backlash can be seen in the United Kingdom, where Brexit rejected an anti-democratic globalism, in Eastern Europe where the success of Poland's Law and Justice Party and Hungary's Fidesz has revitalized a Christian traditionalism, and in Spain, where the rise of Vox has given the world a rare right-wing party with a labor union. The politics and circumstances, of course, vary by country, but tremors from the same tectonic shifts that set off the United States earthquake can be felt far and wide. Three major trends seem responsible for the fall of the old orthodoxy and all point toward the promise of a conservative resurgence. The first is a changing world. Few observations are more trite than the world changes, yet analysis cling to outdated economic claims with religious tenacity, as if each insight represents an eternal and universal truth. Perhaps this is because economists, play-acting at science, pretend that their models offer just that, Those models rely on countless unstated assumptions about the world as it happens to be, and they stop working when it becomes something else. Purveyors of the myth that free trade is always good and more is always better are eager to dismiss the havoc wreaked by the introduction of China's aggressive mercantilism into the global market as an outlier or the exception that proves the rule. But economic models and policy recommendations are of little use 
if they cannot cannot account for a near peer economy of 1.4 billion people dominated by the state controlled enterprise of a communist authoritarian regime. Another change in the world has been the unmooring of ownership of management from the communities in which firms operate. In The Theory of Moral Sentiment, the economist Adam Smith emphasized how societal expectations shape people's incentives. A person's, quote, desire of being what ought to be approved of, he wrote, is necessary in order to render him anxious to be really fit for society. Such considerations for the traditional business owner lose their effect if he is replaced by a set of institutional investors or a consortium of private equity funds on another continent deploying capital held in trust by some government for workers' pensions. In his seminal case for the now prevalent doctrine of shareholder primacy, Milton Friedman, a leader of the Chicago School of Economics, disregarded Smith's nuanced view of the prerequisites for a well-functioning society and celebrated instead a world in which the desires of owners generally will be to make as much money as possible. If the character and constraints of capital ownership change, it should not be surprising that outcomes do too. The list goes on. Changes in cultural norms and expectations, what ought to be approved of in Smith's formulation, should cause policymakers to rethink economic assumptions. Instead, conservatives have de developed the habit of saying, that's a cultural problem, as an excuse to do nothing, for instance, when growing numbers of young men cannot find and hold steady jobs. Growth, investment, and what passes for innovation have become concentrated in a technology sector that, that defaults toward natural monopoly. Trillion-dollar tax cuts seem not to spur capital spending, and trillion-dollar deficits seem not to raise interest rates. Playbooks published in the 1980s do not contain answers. The second trend responsible for the failing consensus is our overreach. In technocratic fantasies, careful regulators fine-tune their policies, asymptotically approaching the ideal formulation for delivering the best outcomes. In practice, politicians and their advisors land on ideas that seem to work and then push them even further. A reduction in too high marginal tax rates rarely sates the appetite uh, for tax cuts. Few policymakers go part way on liberalizing the cross-border flow of goods, people, and capital, and conclude that the time has come to stop. Likewise, issues that have been deemed undeserving of, of concern do not receive attention at the first sign of trouble. They remain ignored until they no longer can be. Even as risk built up in the United States deregulation financial system, nothing was done until after the 2008 meltdown. Policies will tend to be to experience diminishing returns that eventually turn negative until the case for changing direction becomes undeniable. Even the best thinking contains within it the seeds of its own undoing with inevitable ex excesses driving a necessary cycle of failure and reform. The West, now well into a post-war period filled with extraordinary achievements, can double down on the solution of 40 or 60 years ago only so many times before going bust. Dif diffusing the hypernationalist detentions of the early 20th century was wise. 
proceeding to eviscerate solidarity within the nation, nation state was not. Requiring pollution controls and considering the environmental impacts of new projects made sense in the 1970s. Tightening the ratchet afterward until industrial investments faced prohibitive risks and costs did not. Expanding the pipeline of talented students attending college has always been a worthy aspiration. Converting high schools into college prep acad acad academies is not. The third factor undermining the old economic orthodoxy is its failure to update its own rules. An analogy to sports is instructive. The goal of a professional sports league is to entertain paying customers, but the league does not accomplish this by directing how each player moves around the field to create maximum drama. Instead, it establishes rules and trusts that players competing under those rules will yield an entertaining product. The, the unpredictability of the outcome is key to the spectator's enjoyment. Likewise, the rules that the government establishes for economic actors are designed to facilitate competition that will rebound to the benefit of all. And because those actors are free agents working within a system of rules rather than performers following a script, they can respond creatively to changing conditions. But no framework of rules is perfect designed based on designed based on how the game is being played at the time it works well at first but the athletes and teams evolve their own strategies in ways that the rule makers could not have anticipated when competition fails to yield the desired benefits the leagues modify the rules pushing back the three-point line in basketball, lowering the pitcher's mound in baseball, or adding the forward pass in football. The same thing has happened in the U.S. economy, except that the rule makers haven't kept up. Businesses and investors exploit even more obscure opportunities for efficiency, and their most successful strategies tend to diverge from those that produce desirable results for the nation. One such effect is the economy's financialization which has directed an increasing share of talent, investment, and profits toward firms that excel at speculative transactions rather than productive contributions. Another is a labor market trend toward workplaces in which many functions are outsourced and many employees are replaced with independent contractors. As firms maximize their flexibility and profit margins by, min by minimizing their attachments and obligations to workers. Surging profitability may signal success for the capitalist, but as Smith recognized in The Wealth of Nations, the opposite holds true for capitalism. The rate of profit does not, like rent and wages, rise with prosperity and fall with the declension of the society, he wrote. On the contrary, it is naturally low in rich and high in poor countries, and at always highest in the countries in which which are going fastest to ruin. So well, the, hi the higher your profit margin, the faster you're going to ruin. If you're a rich country, your profit margin should be less. That's what he's saying. Yeah, it's like regression, regression to the norm. Uh-huh. To regression to the middle, regression to the middle. Yeah. I think I think there's some good points. There's also when you get into specific policies, um, you can find stuff to nitpick. For instance, 
<laughs> Let's get into it. Um, so this, you know, doubling down. Uh, pollution controls and environmental. So we solved the environmental problem in the 70s. Anything we did after that was just ill-advised. And it's like, I don't think so. I think that the climate crisis is more of an issue now than it was in the 70s. I, yeah, there was rivers on fires in the 70s, but there wasn't a chance for global destruction like there is with the climate crisis. So it's, I mean, now you can nitpick that, but I think what he's saying is well taken. Um, yeah, sending more people to college is good, but turning high schools into college prep academies isn't. That's a good point because you end up with kids in college that should never have been there in the first place. <laughs> that's exactly right. Yeah. Um, yeah, some, I know that some people don't belong in college and and a society where everyone I, I mean a bachelor's degree doesn't prepare you for the world if you're not going to use it uh, so the goal shouldn't be that everyone gets a bachelor's degree you know then that's sort of how they're structuring education well, I, I think the basic underlying premise is, is wrong. Uh, and I, I can speak to this, is that they think, well, you know, education and an undergrad degree, you can get a good job. It's all about getting a good job. And uh, that's not necessarily true. And that's, that's not, it can happen, but it, it one does not necessarily follow from the other. Mm-hmm. And I think same thing in politics. So just just because you get educated, the reason you get educated is not to get a job. The reason you get educated is to become the kind of person you should be. It's becoming a good citizen, a good intelligent person and and living the way you should live, whatever it is. It's not just one one way. Same thing in politics. You, when you have the policies, like you say, Dave, you can nitpick, but uh the policy in itself is fine, but don't make it more than what it is. Don't expand it to something that's not. Mm -hmm. And you say, oh, here's a policy, so therefore it's going to solve the world's problems. No, no, it's, it does that just, just what it's saying. And it, uh, I think you've said this many times before, which I really like. Where you stand depends on where you sit. And so where you are when you have this policy, you're going to make this stand because you're from you're sitting in this area. And that makes sense to you in that area, but it doesn't make sense to everybody. Mm -hmm. And so, so politics uh, is very uh, myopic as far as I'm concerned. Looking at just nitpick uh, policies here, but don't really look at the bigger picture on how you move forward and how it's going to establish a country long term in our nation, in our society. Maybe I didn't say it right, but but I. I but the analogy in education, I think, is a very good analogy. Mm -hmm. So you can go, and his his he uses a lot of analogies here. You can go to school and get education, but that's not going to make you smart. That necessarily gets you a job. And even if it does get you a job, you have to still do the job. You know, they're not just going to give you money because you're smart. Uh, you have to actually do something. Mm -hmm. You know, and so there's some missteps and misinformation there for people who go to college. Also, I, I, and it's the same thing with politics. Same thing with politics. Yeah, I and I also, you know, it sort of lowers the the value of something if everyone has it. The exclusivity of having a college education 
Well, if everyone has one, there's no exclusivity to it. So you can't keep charging more for it if it's actually worth worth less. You know, if 20% of the nation has a bachelor's degree, that's a premium. So when you go into a job interview, it's like, well, you know, I think I have a leg up. If 100% of the nation has a bachelor's degree, you're not, you don't have a leg up. So what's the incentive? I mean, I guess it's, can you not get employed without a bachelor's? You know what I mean? It's, um, but oh, yeah. I want to talk about his asymptotic policy. Uh, I always think, you know, oh, people dial it in, but I think that he's right more. It's like you find something that works and you do it until it doesn't work anymore, or you do it till you overdo it and then you adjust. And that's probably more than sort of trying to dial in the perfect amount. And it, it's sort of like saying, you know, oh, I like drinking coffee uh, in the mornings because it helps me wake up and I am a little bit sharper. It's like, so what if I drink so much coffee that I feel like I'm going to die all day? <laughs> and it's like, oh, that's too much coffee. Maybe I should drink less coffee, you know? Uh, <laughs> or like a baseball, baseball analogy. You, 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 you focus, you have batting practice. You say, look, here's how you hit the ball. You got to hit the ball in this game. You got to hit it really good. You got to watch the pitch. You got to keep your eye on the ball. Okay. And you go to the game. Boom. You hit the ball and you had a great hit. Hey, you got to run the bases. Oh, you didn't tell me that. Yeah. No, you got to run the bases. Okay. So Elliot starts running at first base and just keeps running. Wait a minute. Come back and you got to go to second. Mm -hmm. Oh, you mean there's more to the story? Yeah, there's more to the story. It's not just batting. It's not just one policy. We have a whole country here. It's not just one constituent. We have a whole population here, and they all matter. They all matter. And I think it's interesting, this conservative guy, he's saying, you know, look at Adam Smith, the father of modern economics, and what he said in Wealth of Nations, and how that sort of makes sense. And then look at Milton Freeman from the Chicago School. And how that sort of leads to the ex, because we have a, a for, you had a former neighbor that loved Milton Freeman. And where you stand depends on where you sit. And if you sit as someone with large investments, where a good day is when your investments go up and a bad day is when your investments go down, you're likely to think that Milton Freeman's right. You know what I mean? Where you stand depends on where you sit. Uh, let's see what what was the quote that they pulled from Milton Friedman. Um, here it is. Uh, Milton Friedman, a leader of the Chicago School of Economics, disregarded Smith's nuanced view of the prerequisites of a well-functioning society and, and celebrated instead a world in which the desires of owners generally will be to make as much money as possible. Yep. So the thing is, if you hold... 30, 40% of your net worth, and your net worth is considerable, in stocks, aka you are an owner, you have equity ownership of a firm, you are going to see the world as, I made $11,000 in increased stock prices today. On paper, in 24 hours, passively, I'm worth $11,000 more. That's a good thing. And the owners of the companies that, I mean, the, the CEOs, the, the officers of the companies that I hold a stake of ownership in, their job should be to maximize profits. Because I'm the owner, and I say so. But it's like, yeah, but there's other concerns. What about, you know, the rights of the employees? What about uh, their economic impact on the environment? What, I mean, their environmental impact. What, there's a lot of things they could do. 
But where you stand depends on where you sit. And like from the Milton Friedman school, and like the guy said, the financialization, like the smartest people, you might go to Princeton and you might get a degree in chemical engineering or molecular biology. And you say, okay, well, I could go get a master's degree, maybe work in a lab. I could go get a PhD, maybe teach. Or with my chemical engineering degree, uh, I could work for a company like Dow Chemical. Or I could start off at an investment bank or a hedge fund or a private equity fund because I'm very good with numbers and spreadsheets and make four times as much. So why not just abandon everything I learned about uh, you know, molecular biology or chemical engineering and just go sit at a desk, look at an Excel spreadsheet, and make pitch books for my investment bank because I would rather make $400,000 a year than $100,000 a year. And you can incentivize people with money, but that sort of drains the... froze. Uh, on Skype, I froze? Oh, yeah, my internet is at zero. What? I mean, I, there's nothing I can do about it. We're back. We're back. Um, but the... I guess what I was saying is my internet's at zero. It's weird. What the hell? I don't know. But you were, you were making a good point, David. But uh, the thing is, like, these molecular biologists, a Princeton-educated, uh, MIT-educated molecular biologist or chemical engineer, they should be advancing the world in their discipline. But when they go out there and they realize, oh, the career path for a molecular biologist, it's there. It exists. And I'd be at the top of my field. But I would make four times as much money being at the bottom of my field as a junior analyst at an investment bank. So why wouldn't I do that instead? And it's that's the tough thing. Our society incentivizes uh, brain drain from productive, like this is what he's saying, brain drain from productive uh, fields into non-productive, like speculative fields. That's like the whole point of this section. And I, I agree with him there. Yeah, I agree with too. Two, two things real quick. Uh, I was talking to someone one time and they were saying, well, I was told I really need to, to go to school so I can get a job and really just make more money because making more money is really the goal in life. And I says, well, that's not a very good goal because if making more money is your goal, then no matter how much money you've made, you can always make more money. And so it dooms you to a life of failure because you haven't made more money. Because mm -hmm. whatever you make, you can make more. And so you're never satisfied. It dooms you to a life of failure. On the other hand, when I was in school a long time ago, uh, I had a colleague and she was really smart. I Really, really smart. And, uh, and uh, we're at a graduate, graduate school. And one day she says, well, I'm leaving school. I says, you're leaving school, why? She says, you know, uh, I've learned what I want in life. I says, what What are you gonna do? She says, I, I'm going to work as a truck driver. I said, a truck driver? We're, we're getting an education here, you know, we're, we're and she goes, nah, uh, I wanna drive a truck and just be happy. And she did. And at the time I thought, wow, that's weird. Why would anyone drive a truck and then I had to tell myself and be happy. Well, for her, she was a very, she could, she could 
do circles around people who are doing academic or, or very technical jobs. Mm-hmm. But she wouldn't be happy. And so she's driving a truck and being happy. Yeah. Maybe that, that's a, a stretch from this. But the point is, is that is that you have to think about the people. All Everyone's different. And everyone's not the same. And when you have a policy, those policies uh, in, in your ivory tower sound good. But then when it comes down to the people, all the people are different. And you have to be really, really careful how you enact policy in politics mm-hmm. because you're trying to make it uh, support all the people. And so whether you're right, you're left, you're not supporting everyone. So somehow we have to uh, have a country. And I think the experiment back in the 16th, 18th century uh, of the United States focusing on the people, I think it was I think it was brilliant because let let the people create an environment where everyone has something uh, to live for. It's I, not just the not just the elite. I don't know exactly what you're talking about. The experiment in the 19th century of the United States focusing on the people. No, the 18th, the 1700s. Oh, the drafting of the Constitution. Great, the great experiment of the of the, of the we the people of okay. letting the people. Letting the people run the country, mm-hmm. letting people vote, you know, and actually giving power to the states, and they have equal power, and, and that and the states go to the districts and and let the people run the country, and then let everyone come here, have a melting pot of the nation, and let the people decide. And uh, there, it's really a crazy idea. It's a crazy idea that worked. Mm-hmm. Why? Because there's power in people. There's yeah. more power in people than there is government. But so, so when you get more power, go ahead. so we still have that system. I mean, we have more of that system. Women can vote. We do. We don't have slaves we do, anymore. But I, no, but I think what's happening here, in my mind, you know, maybe I'm too philosophical, but what I'm having, we had, we built this country on this system, where you have we the people. And what's happening in is it's becoming more and more top heavy, more and more top heavy. People at the top trying to grab uh, power uh, and for all different ways. Well, they've had policy. They've had they've had uh, uh, platforms and now they've had personalities and personas. And so they keep grabbing more and more power. And uh, and I say, well, we have to be very careful. We don't get away from we the people. And and even that is is not perfect. No, I mean, people, We the People was the QAnons. That's I mean, what I'm saying. Like, that's, we the People voted against Biden. How could he possibly be president? It's like, because the person that gets the most votes wins. Like, every time except for in 2016 and 2000, the person that gets the most votes wins. There, I mean, there are two, two recent exceptions. So they're like, well, last time he didn't get the most votes and he won. Why didn't he win this time, even though he lost by 6 million votes? Like... He should win because we wanted him to win. We the people wanted it was like, yeah, but we the people doesn't just mean what you want. Um, it's like, well, it did last time. You know, he lost last time and he got to be president. We the people. Um, so I guess... I'm I guess it's not a perfect system. Yeah, it's a subversion I, of the we the people. It uh, is, but the point is, it, it's not perfect. It can go south, it can go bad, but and has gone bad before. It keeps coming back. It's gone bad, it keeps coming back. Why? Because we have the ability to keep shifting and moving it around. And uh, so we just have to be diligent, you know. Mm-hmm. 
Well, and anyway, getting off getting off the track here. Yeah. I mean, I just when you were like, uh, yeah, the, the idea that we had in the 19th century, it's like, uh, th- th- I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> so you're talking about the founding I, of the nation. I said 18th century, the, the 1700s, mm-hmm. at the founding of our country. Yeah. So they left England. They saw France. They saw England. They saw Spain. And they go, we see that, but we just want to be free. Mm-hmm. So we're going to come here and not have government telling us what to do. We want to create our own our own government. And that 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 perception, mm-hmm. it's not perfect. Uh, you know, they said, let's just try this thing. And uh, it grew. And uh, there's there's a lot of ways it can go down. But what I what I was getting at is that like, like the QAnon and the and the Proud Boys and the right and the left and this. But if you have the people can keep pulling it back and pulling it back and moving here and moving there and pulling it back. Uh, the the people can as in the past have always brought it back uh, to something that's going to be workable, and maybe in the future, maybe we will fall. I don't know, but it's been a good ride, and it's been it's worked worked it's worked well to date. I, they, it doesn't mean it work mean, well in the future. Maybe we will fall. I don't. I, what does that mean? Well, like everyone will sort of adopt an authoritarian strategy like China's. What does that mean? Well, what that means is that what if the capital is taken over and all of a sudden someone gets in there and claims himself as dictator and abolishes the Constitution? And all of a sudden they're in control of the the military and they force everyone to follow him. Sounds ridiculous, doesn't it? It's happened before. Yeah, I mean, I guess... Um, at that point, it wouldn't be a fall. It would be a glorious asc- ascension of a new leader. And everyone would have to get on board or else, you know, you'd just be nostalgic for the time where we had this silly idea about democracy. I mean, maybe... The old the f- has fallen, the new has risen. Yeah. Yep. And we'll say, man, things are so much better with this authoritarian techno state, uh, Chinese-style social credit scores and... Uh, cameras following you wherever you go. You have to have your phone on with location enabled. Um, apps. One child per family rule. Uh, yeah, I think that they've abandoned that, but well, they have. But they had it. Yeah. Um, I mean, we had slavery, so we had slavery. Would you rather have a system where you're only allowed to have one child, or a system where slavery is allowed, uh, embraced, where half the nation will go to war to preserve it? I mean. So you can sort of point out bad policies in China, but you can point out bad policies here as well. Absolutely. We all have skeletons in our closet. Um, Right. Let's see what he says, where we should go, and then conclude the episode. How does that sound? Hey, a new approach. A new approach. And I've been a little bit upset with my internet today. It is not behaving. I blame Comcast. Uh, But... That's neither here nor there. Let's get into it. These trends are the product of not too much conservative thinking, but of too little. American politics, guided by the neoliberal consensus between progressives and libertarians, has focused on a blinkered set of moral concerns and blindly pursued the unquestioned priorities of personal freedom and consumption. No wonder the prevailing consensus struggles to respond to the problems facing society today. Conservatism, however, is well suited to addressing them. Conservatives have an appreciation for the nation state, the rules and institutions necessary to well-functioning markets 
pockets and the strength of the social fabric. The starting point provides a better foundation for addressing great power competition with China, monopolies in the technology sector, failing communities and rising inequality than does the libertarian faith in markets or the progressive reliance on redistribution. Whereas progressives and libertarians both exhibit an inclination to reason from abstract principles toward absolute commitments and thus encourage overreach, the conservative begins by looking at real-world conditions. Burke knew this well. Circumstances give, in reality, every political principle its distinguished color and discriminating effect, he wrote. The circumstances are what render every civil and political scheme beneficial or noxious to mankind. Accepting the rule book's inherent imperfection and striving to update it over time as conditions change, that is the quintessential conservative approach to policymaking. A conservative economics would re recognize the power and value of markets but insist on analyzing them within their human context rather than as an abstract engine of efficiency. For instance, it would recognize the pernicious effects that high levels of economic inequality can have on the social fabric, the functioning of markets, and people's well-being. Regardless of absolute material living standards, it would give weight to the value of diffuse and widespread investment, not just the value of agglomeration. It would consider the benefits that locally owned establishments bring to their communities, alongside the benefits that hyper-efficient conglomerates can deliver. It would recognize the importance of non-market labor performed within the household and the community, such as caretaking and volunteering, rather than assuming that the higher monetary incomes in a society of two earner families must indicate progress. Organized labor should be a conservative priority. The outdated U.S. system is in terminal decline and in desperate need of reform, functioning more as a fundraising arm of the Democratic Party than as an economic force boosting workers' fortune. Union membership has fallen to 6% of the private sector workforce. Conservatives will find much to like in the concept of a vibrant labor labor movement, giving workers power in the job market, representation in the workplace, and support in the community. Placing workers on an even footing with firms so they can recognize, negotiate their terms of employment boosts family incomes by emphasizing economic agency and self-reliance rather than by resorting to redistribution. It allows them to make trade-offs tailored to their own personal preferences rather than depend on government regulation to protect their interests. The union is also the quintessential mediating institution, occupying a role in civil society between atomized individuals on one hand and an encroaching state on the other, a force that can help people transition into the workforce and between jobs, build solidarity among workers and relationships with employers, and even manage portions of the social safety net. It is time for conservatives to rethink the public education system, too, which has been commandeered for the task of transforming all Americans into college-educated knowledge workers and does it quite poorly. According to data from the Department of Education and Federal Reserve, the barely one in five young Americans goes on from high school to college, completes a degree on time, and then finds a job requiring that degree. A better approach would ensure that schools can meet students where they are and offer them pathways to productive lives and jobs they want and in which they can excel. High schools would teach practical skills and partner with employers to offer workplace experiences. Post-secondary programs would emphasize subsidized employment and on-the-job training. Colleges would not operate as amusement parks that deform the cultural expectations and economic incentives of young people. Instead, they would be recognized as one path among many, present prospective students with their real cost, and thus represent an attractive option for some, but not most. Conservatives are right to look skeptically at the ability of the government to supplant markets, but they must appreciate both what markets do well and what they will not do on their own, and thus embrace the indispensable public role of channeling investment toward long-term national priorities. This was long the American tradition. Indeed, it was a pillar of the American system of investment in domestic industry and infrastructure proposed by Alexander Hamilton, championed by Henry Clay, and endorsed 
endorsed by Abraham Lincoln, a plan that helped transform the United States from a colonial backwater into the leading global power. A modern equivalent would sponsor innovation, mandate domestic sourcing and critical supply chains, and discourage the financial speculation that goes by the name of investment, but bears little resemblance to the work of being productive capacity in the real economy. A conservative coalition built around economic priorities such as these, plus a merely non-radical set of cultural concerns, would attract a broad range of voters. It would attract the core of the existing Republican Party, which, as Trump proved, has much less interest in libertarian platitudes than Beltway strategists assumed. It might equally appeal to a large portion of the Democratic Party that is likewise culturally conservative. Many Democratic voters aspire not to escape their families and communities or rely on public benefits, but rather to be productive contributors in an economy that that has a place for them. Unlike the naive fantasies that presume that a centrism halfway between the party's existing commitments must surely be ideal, a multi-ethnic working class conservatism could deliver a durable governing majority. It would do so by rediscovering an entirely different set of commitments, one that both party elites have neglected for too long. <laughs> well, he's going for it. I don't agree with some of this stuff. I mean, I think that his bias sort of um, sort of you know comes into effect here I especially this uh, believe it or not Democrats don't just want to destroy their families and communities and rely on the welfare state some Democrats want to be productive in an economy it's like okay yeah like I guess that's why you know the blue states account for 70 percent of the economy because Democrats, they just want to be the engine that drives the economy, and the red states want to be the other thirty percent. Um, you know, it's it's <laughs> it's it's clear that he has you know a lifelong. You got to get in a dig. Oh yeah, I mean, some Democrats don't want to just be wards of the state. Yeah, um, that part sort of rubbed me the wrong way. But you know, he's a conservative, and he's writing this article. From a think tank, the, what is he, the executive director of American Compass. I'm assuming that's some sort of traditional conservative think tank. I mean, we could look it up. Uh, I'm looking it up right now. So it's, like you said, in theory, theory and practice, right? Yeah. Um, so let's take a look at this guy's thing. American Compass. Subscribe, donate. Our mission, let's look at their mission, to restore an economic consensus that emphasizes the importance of family, community, and industry to the liberty and prosperity of the nation. Okay, so he's advocating for this stuff. Uh, and so how did you feel about that final uh, sort of screed, his... He wound up, wound up and he brought it home with, we should do all this stuff and conservatism can rule again. Yeah, well, he's, I don't know, mixing, mixing a conservative uh, theory with conservative practice. And to me, they didn't really match up that well. He's kind of using this banners, therefore let's do it this way. And I don't know. Uh, it just seemed like uh, a good argument, good analogies, good ideas, uh, but it's with just one perspective and one view. Mm -hmm. I I I understand what he's saying. It's 
especially with the labor union stuff, it sounds like because he's talked about Vox, one of the few conservative parties, the labor union. He sees that, you know, conservatives should make a play for the labor union. And, yeah, it's only 6% of the job market right now, private employment. But if conservatives championed it, they could make it a force like it was in decades past, but not for the Democrats. I mean, that's that's an interesting thought. Now, like they say, the devil's in the details. So how do you make labor unions a conservative priority? How do you initiate policies that grow labor unions? And then how do you get those labor unions to vote for conservative candidates? That's a big three-step process. You see what I'm saying? Yes. Well, you know, I don't know. I got a question for you, David. Mm-hmm. When I back up and look at this from 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 a thirty thousand foot level, I'm thinking, you know, this is in foreign affairs, uh, and there are some academic a- academicians write papers in here, uh, but this doesn't seem like a really academic paper at all. It's a political paper, mm-hmm. uh, and so his arguments are not necessarily going to be. Uh, academically uh, driven uh, to look at all sides and looking at the theory. It's looking at from one perspective and one side uh, from a conservative. Well, he says it's conservative, but he doesn't approach it from a uh, a logical view that looks at the, the both sides of the issue. He looks at it from one side of the issue. Am I right or not? Uh, just what do you think? I think I just get that feeling. I it's a position paper, right? For for mm-hmm. and I think what he's selling. I mean, what is this guy selling? Is his little think tank <laughs> and that sort of diminishes him? But I mean, he's a he was a management consultant at Bain and Company, a large private equity firm, large consulting firm, because uh, Bain Capital's the private equity firm. So Bain and Company is a consulting firm, one of the premier consulting companies in the world at Boston and Delhi offices. He also got a JD, magna cum laude, from Harvard Law School. Um, he's done stuff. And then he started this think tank. And I think that he wants to join the conversation. And I think that part in the middle, so where you stand depends on where you sit. And I think it's important to look at that part in the middle where he's talking about the Heritage Foundation, the Hoover Institute, the... Do you remember when he's talking about their mission yeah. statements and how they're all the same? I think he's yeah. looking at the landscape and he's saying, I'm educated. I'm a smart guy. I'm a conservative. And I see just a consolidation in one area of the conservative think tank world. I want to be a counterbalance to advocate for more right-of-center policies, for more right-of-center economic... And one way to sort of increase my legitimacy is say, hey, I'm the head of American Compass. Can I write an article about the new conservatism for foreign affairs? And people will see it. And I know for a fact that there are some conservatives out there that agree with his position. I mean, he's able to have his own little, uh, I don't want to say little, it's like diminishing the guy. It's not one of the heavy hitters. It's not the Heritage Foundation. It's not the Cato Institute. I, so he's, it's not one of the big three. It's like, like, it's like, who knows how big it is or, you know, I don't, I haven't seen their 990 or whatever, but um, he has his own think tank after working as a journalist and being a lawyer. And I think he understands policy well, and this is the direction he wants to move in. 
And I think that probably working with Romney and being a traditional conservative, he sees a window, at least for himself, but also for the nation, to sort of embrace right-of-center policies. And this is a good way to get his message out because it's a, like you said, it's not an academic journal, but it's sort of a position paper for right-of-center conservative politics moving forward. Well, I, yeah, I think that's a good way to frame it. I, I'm look, reading this. Now that we see the whole thing, I think, oh, wow. This is a position paper for his position. It's not really an academic paper looking at conservatism uh, in in the spectrum. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it doesn't really analyze anything. It promotes mm-hmm. his position. It's a promotion. It's like an advertisement. Uh, and so, uh, and that's fine. I mean, it's, it's well written. Obviously, he's very intelligent. He's a very smart guy. He has some very good arguments, very logical, but it's all for one direction. It's all in one direction for one purpose, and that is like a position, his position. Uh, it's not necessarily looking at a spectrum. It's looking at his position on that spectrum. And, uh, and I, I, Maybe I'm not right. Maybe I'm wrong. But I think you have idea. a very good point, and I do wonder. Let's. Can I just Google around for a little bit? Absolutely. Go Google. Go Google, Dave. Okay, so we have American Compass. That's this guy, Orrin Cass, is about our mission. Uh huh. Yeah. They want to restore economic consent. So they're a right of center economically focused. They want to sort of pull the focus away from the libertarianism that's dominated by the big conservative think tanks. One of which I believe is here in Colorado. Heritage Foundation. I think the Coors fund fund this one a little bit. I'm not sure about that, but so this is let's see about heritage. What is theirs? Building an America where freedom, opportunity, prosperity, and civil society flourish. So that doesn't really say. Uh, but these are the big ones, and then the Cato Institute, a public policy think tank. Uh, no, I don't want you to send me stuff. Install and run. It's trying to install software. Uh, that's oh my god! It wants to every time. Block. <laughs> Come on. Um, that's annoying. It's really annoying, David. Principles: individual liberty, limited government, free markets, and peace. So, uh, free markets, individual liberty, limited government. I guess. American Compass, this guy, Orrin Cass, is saying this like libertarian orthodoxy that's taken over the right wing of think tanks, I don't ascribe to that. I think conservatism can forge a middle ground, a middle ground that respects families, that respects the markets, but also has government intervention to ameliorate the negative effects of, and I think that he, his arguments are, you know, higher education or not valuing um, a caretaker in the household doing household work or, or volunteers in the community doing unpaid work, that that has value. You can't just judge everything in terms of dollars and cents. And so I do think this guy has a good point. My question is, and I think that like what you were saying, so before I started Googling around, is I don't <laughs> understand the mechanism by which the Cato Institute, the Heritage Institution, American Compass. 
uh, I don't understand the mechanism by which they affect public policy, the mechanism by which they truly want to achieve their goals, or the mechanism by which they just ad- exist to promote themselves. So I think <laughs> I think there's an very element of all point, of that. David. Very, very good point. What influence do all these all these organizations have? Mm-hmm. And is there invo- influence just for themselves and just like like introverted? It's all uh, introversion mm-hmm. type of support and influence. This one influences this one. This influences this one, and they both feel the same way. And so together, uh, it's like an incestual relationship. And I, I, I'm not sure about this because I, I'm not in the world of Washington, but this is my, I think places like the Cato Institute, the Heritage Foundation, like the Republicans want to ram a tax cut through. And the bill is 1,500 pages and nobody's read it. And they push it through. Like someone had to write those 1,500 pages. I think these think tanks do that. They say, oh, yeah, we got... Um, uh, $800 billion tax cut, just right here. Here's 800 pages of your tax cut. And they say, okay, we'll take it. Like, let's just, you know, propose it. Let's vote on it. It's like, well, I, you just sent it to me 10 minutes ago. How can I vote on it? Like, I haven't had a chance to read it. It's like, vote on it. Like, that's the rules. You know, we're just following the rules of parliament. So I do think that the some of these heavy hitters, they literally do write legislation and they have it on deck. Wow. Okay. That's good insight, David. I, I, I'm not sure about this because I don't know the inner workings. So they actually do sort of affect public policy because they write public policy. Um, and the think, think, think tank, so what you're saying is they will let their position be known. And so when the politicians want a bill along those lines, they'll know where to go to get it written. Yes. Because they write very well. They're very intelligent. They're very good writers. This guy, this is well written, very well written. And I guess my question is, if you believe in certain values, like, shouldn't one of those values be, I guess it's, it's out of your hands. You're just crafting the legislation. It's Congress that's making the whole chamber vote on a 1,500-page bill after having received it 10 minutes before. But don't you think there's something strange and undemocratic about that? Yes. Um so I guess it's, maybe it's not the think tank's fault. It's nobody's fault. You just blame someone else. You know, the think tank say, no, it's Congress's fault, you know. And, you know, the people that pushed the bill through say, you should have read the bill. It's like, I had 10 minutes to read it. It was 1,500 pages. You, then you forced a vote on it. And it's like, yeah, well, maybe you should learn to read faster. <laughs> I don't know. So I, I guess, like you're saying, I guess to wrap this up, because we've, we've gone on long enough. This guy, he runs a think tank. And he's a he's I think he's trying to position himself as a kinder, gentler, conservative think tank. Do you feel like that's a fair assessment? It's not that's that's fair. That's fair. And again, it's truly it's it's an ad, it's an advertisement, it's a it's a position paper, but also he's doing it in such a way that he's trying to soften the blow a little bit to, to so that to get more more support. Mm-hmm. More support from a broader, broader constituent, and yep. uh, he has his position, but he's softening that blow to broaden the support, so they can 
the center core of that message can be can be promoted and carried forward to wherever they go. Like you said, maybe writing a bill or something. Because mm-hmm. yeah, they can. You could this this guy and his his uh, group. They can write bills that can appeal uh, to the middle and and get maybe it'll pass. Yeah. And but it, but it's in the core. It's on the right. But he can write in such a way that it's broad enough that it appeals uh, enough voters to where you'll get enough people voting for it and they'll get the bill passed. Yeah. I don't know. I'm, I'm just hypothesizing. Also, you know, I think that he wants a core group of legislators to sort of like Mitt Romney hired him. He's like, Romney hired me. You know, I'm one of the real conservatives. I'm not a Trumpist. And he feels like like when he's saying Trumpism is temporary. Like, it's going to turn around, and people are going to realize there's a path forward that's not just dogmatism or uh, worshiping a demagogue, and that path forward could be real conservatism in the Republican Party. And when they realize that, he'll be there, ready to supply them with research and public policy perspective and, and position papers and talking points, and, and that's what you know think tanks exist for. So good for this guy, right? Well, to me, one way of looking at it, and I'm not sure he's going in this direction, but he may be, you have the Trump anomaly, Mm -hmm. and then you have the positions, the the political position, uh, uh, what's it called, Uh, isolationism, where only a few people know what all that stuff means, Mm -hmm. okay, and then you have the voters. And so he is trying to get in the middle into this triangle, trying to position himself in the middle where all three of those come together to be successful for a party. Yeah. And, I mean, more power to him. I At least he's not just way out there in the weeds. And I think that some of the stuff that I bristled at, like, yeah, environmental protection was good in the 1970s, but now the world is cleaner than it's ever been. We need to strip all environmental regulations. It's too onerous on industry. Or, you know, believe it or not, some Democrats don't don't want to be wards of the welfare state. Those are the ones we want voting for us. It's like, um, I think he might have to say those things because he's preaching to acquire. He wants uh, funding from conservative sources. He wants the support of conservative legislators. So he can't just sort of be a moderate Democrat and be like, hey, conservatives, come here. He has to say some things that sort of red meat for the people that will give him money. Exactly. And he'll throw those things out across the board. He says, oh, I disagree with that, but I agree with that. Yeah. So you focus on what you agree in if you're going to believe his his overall pitch. Mm-hmm. And you're I, right. I like the red meat thing. Yeah. <laughs> so... So I think we've solved the world's problems uh, in terms of the new conservatism. Do you think we should wrap this episode up? We're a little long. Well, whether yeah, I think it's time to wrap up. Well, whether we solved it, whether we didn't, we sure had fun because you got the music playing there, David? It is. Okay, because whatever you do, whether you solve things or not, keep on talking. But listen more than you talk. And try to understand what the other person is saying. Bye. Bye.